Well, good morning and welcome to 4th of July week. You notice red, white, and blue? 4th of July is kind of a big deal to me. And uh, uh, I was noticing this week I happened to be in my little office and I, I looked up on my bookshelf and I noticed all the history books I had. I have a history of Colorado, history of the American presidents. I have historical fiction. I have um, pictorial history books. And, and that kind of surprised me when I thought about it because when I was in school, I didn't like history. I don't know how you liked history class, but uh, to me there were way too many dates to memorize and for those tests and just didn't care for it. But I know my father was kind of into history a little bit, and he used to have, quote a saying all the time, and I can't get it out of my mind. He said, we learn from history that we do not learn from history. And, uh, and now that I'm getting older, I find an, myself with an increasing interest in history. And really, that's what this week is all about. It's the 4th of July week when we celebrate our nation's history. Whoa. Let's see if I can get this a little tighter here. Well, maybe I'll just forget about that. Um, 239 years ago, on the 4th of July, I think I've got that right. Math wasn't my favorite subject either, but uh, back in 19 or in 1776, uh, our nation was formed, independent of England and the tyranny that had been burdened upon the colonies. We became a sovereign country. Now, much of my life has been spent in small communities, rural areas, uh, in remote forest service locations before I went into ministry, uh, almost a quarter century in Alaska. And in those small towns, Fourth of July was a real big deal. I don't know how it was where you grew up, but it seemed like every community had a big parade. We had barbecues. Here we have popsicles. Uh, we had fireworks. In Alaska, the fireworks couldn't start until midnight because it wasn't dark enough until then, and even then it was barely dark enough. But even so, the whole town showed up. Well, what made that so special? Well, it's not just the birthday of our nation. It's a reminder of our historical heritage. And I believe it should be a call for Christians to protect that heritage. I like that song we opened with this morning, God is not dead. Maybe this is a time we need to remember that. A key word in today's message title is heritage. This is what Webster says it means. Something handed down from one's ancestors or the past as a characteristic, a culture, tradition, and so forth. And the second part of the definition is that the rights, burdens, or status resulting, resulting from being born in a certain time or place. The English Standard Version of the Bible renders Psalm 33:12 as blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his heritage. Now, I'm not emphasizing our nation's heritage today because I believe God is on the side of America. 
And somehow we enjoy a special blessing because we are Americans. That's not what we're celebrating this 4th of July. You know, America doesn't always get things right. We don't have any special blessing simply because we are Americans. As someone has said, the question is not so much whether God is on our side, but whether we are on God's side. At the time, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. He was asked the question, what made it possible for the Russian Revolution to take place and for communism to rise to power? And his reply was simple and direct. Men forgot God. So perhaps the 4th of July should be a time for Americans not to forget God. God is not dead. Well, concerning our 52 series, 52 essential verses that we need, that we should uh, digest, our verse this week that I've chosen is one that uh, has a warning from God, but then a promise to a special people who were prone to forgetting their God-ordained heritage. So would you stand with me while we read our verse of the week, 2 Chronicles 7.14. By the way, this was the verse that the Bible was open to when President Ronald Reagan was sworn in as oath of office on both occasions. And I think it was also the verse that was used, the Bible was open this verse for some earlier presidents as well. So I hope you'll memorize this verse this week. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.14. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord, we do come this morning humbling ourselves before you. We know we don't always do things right, but we're so thankful that, uh, that our nation, as we celebrate our nation's birthday and look back on the history, that it was based on some biblical standards, some Christian values. And Lord, we'd like to honor that this week. We'd like to dedicate this time to you as we uh, humble ourselves before you, seek your face, and uh, claim your promises. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> well, what can we learn about protecting our heritage from Second Chronicles 7:14? Well, I think the first thing we need to note here is the context of the verse. You noticed it started with then. In some translations, it starts with if and right in the middle of a sentence, indicating that, well, we need to Go back and uh, read the preceding verses to see what's being said here. The verses speaks to the dedication of Solomon's temple, which had occurred earlier. We're probably in the 800 B.C. era here. And chapter 6 gives Solomon's prayer of dedication. And in that prayer, he acknowledges that if his people, the Israelites, do not follow the ways of God... There's going to be judgment on the land. And Solomon asked in that prayer that God will hear from heaven. And when the people repent, he asked for restoration. In chapter 7, God answers Solomon's prayer. 
and confirms that when his people rebel and sin, he will shut up the heavens. He will stop the rain. He will send pestilence upon the land. But in chapter 7, verse 7, is the promise that, that he will restore when the people repent. And so that's the context. And in the mind of the chronicle writer, restoring the land also implied restoration of the people to a right relationship with God. At this time, the prophets were continually warning them that uh, uh, there was a broken relationship between God and his people due to idolatry. So what we're looking at here is restored land, restored people, restored relationships. And what an application for us. Israel had a God-based heritage, a monotheistic culture where God gave them the Mosaic Law to live by. And as we see as we go through these next points, we have a law-based culture based on Judeo-Christian principles. And may we never forget it as we reflect on our nation's history this week. The verse says, talks about those called by his name. Well, this passage is indeed addressed to the Jews, the nation of Israel. But we note in the New Testament that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are also called a special chosen people. 1 Peter 2.9 says, For you are a chosen people. This is the New Testament. You are a kingdom of priests, God's holy nations, his very own possession. This is so you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Israel was called out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, and into the promised land. We are called out of the darkness and into light. Alexander the Great once found out that a soldier that also had the name Alexander had proven to be a coward in battle. He called the man to appear before him, and he told him, either live up to your name or change it. So Christians, let's live up to our name, our heritage. When our country was being formed, when the founders were crafting the documents that would define us for centuries to come, they acknowledged the rights inherent upon a free people as recognized by biblical standards. The Christian name and biblical principles were mentioned frequently. Not long ago, political science professors at the University of Houston collected and cataloged 15,000 writings by the founding fathers between the years 1760 and 1805 in an attempt to identify the source of quotes used most often by them. Guess what primary source of quotes was used most often by the founders? 34% of the quotes were direct quotations from the Bible. And most of the others were quotes by others who had based their statements on biblical wording. If you go way back in our history, even much earlier, 1620, the hardy people who sailed on the Mayflower, where they were fleeing from European oppression, and they came to the New World for Christian liberty. On board the ship, they purposed together in a document we know as the Mayflower Compact, 
where they proclaimed that they had come to the new world for, quote, the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Years later, a key event leading up to the Revolutionary War and the break from tyranny was the Boston Tea Party. Samuel Adams, organizer of that infamous Tea Party, used these words, the right to freedom being the gift of the Almighty. The rights of the colonists as Christians may best be understood by reading and carefully studying the institutions of the great lawgiver and head of the Christian church, which are to be found and clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. Now, no one's trying to say that everyone in America is Christian. One of the rights guaranteed by the founders was the freedom to worship and to choose. There would be no state church telling you which God to worship or how to do it. There would be a separation of church and state. But history shows that the founders were basing their words on Christian standards. In that sense, we're called by his name. We're to humble ourselves and pray. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. For a nation to receive God's grace, the people must approach him in a humble manner. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but favors the humble. That, we hear that throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, that's a direct quote from Proverbs, Proverbs 3.34. In his inaugural address, our first president, George Washington, humbly accepted the duty of the people uh, the, du- the duty that the people had entrusted him with. And although Washington would state that the U.S. government was not based on the Christian religion per se, there's room for other religions to worship freely, listen to his words. At his inaugural address, he said, the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right, which heaven itself has ordained. Humility before God, humbleness before God for a nation is expressed by confessing our sins to him in prayer and asking for forgiveness. And the Bible gives us so many examples of great national leaders who humbled themselves before God as they interceded for their nation and asked God to restore their nation's godly heritage. One of my favorites is the prayer of Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1. Listen to how he prayed, beginning in verse 5. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, laws, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Notice how Nehemiah identified himself with his people in his prayer of confession. And I know that Nehemiah was not personally involved in the rebellious sin of Israel that led to their captivity. He wasn't even born yet. But he knew that he too was a sinner in God's eyes, and he humbly included himself in the prayer of confession. You'll find a very, very similar prayer in Daniel chapter 9. 
uh, where he too confessed uh, this, his nation's sin by identifying himself with his countrymen. I encourage you to read that sometime. We won't take the time here. But even our founding fathers whom we suspect were not Christian in the sense that they believed in Jesus Christ, his personal Savior, they applied Christian heritage principles to government. Benjamin Franklin, who was probably a deist theologically, was the one who asked that the Constitutional Convention convene every day with prayer to God. These powerful men who would shape the destiny of our future felt the need to humble themselves before God Almighty as they sought to govern our fledgling nation. How much more should we begin our day praying for our country's leaders, for our country's status? Pray that our heritage be protected. Our verse says we're to seek his face. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. In Jeremiah chapter 29, the prophet Jeremiah, who did not get carried away into captivity when Judah fell to the Babylonians, he stayed behind. But he wrote a letter to the captives. In that letter he spoke of Israel's restoration after 70 years of prophesied captivity. And he quoted the Lord to them in that letter. He said, If you look for me in earnest, you will find me when you seek me. And some translations say, Diligently seek me. And then Jeremiah goes on to say how they as a nation and their land will be restored. In the year following the War of Independence, Patrick Henry reminded Americans of the need to continually seek God. He said, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. That's pretty strong words for a politician, for a government, uh, for a government leader. What Patrick Henry was saying to me was that Americans need to be reminded of our Christian heritage and protect it. Continue to seek God. To that end, in 1782, the Congress of the United States printed a Bible and passed a resolution that read, The United States in Congress assembled recommend this edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States, a neat edition of the Holy Scriptures for the use of schools. How about that? We're to turn from our wicked ways. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Uh, You know, that direction shouldn't be too hard to understand. Stop doing what it is that's displeasing to God. Ezekiel made it very plain. Ezekiel 14 Therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the Sovereign Lord. Repent and turn away from your idols. Stop all your loathsome practices. What part of stop doing it don't we understand? If our nation seeks God's face, it should not be that difficult to determine what our nation might be doing that's working against God's direction. 
Now, I could stand up here with a list of things that I suspect are displeasing to God, but I'd probably get in all kinds of political trouble. So you're going to have to define that for yourself based on your application of biblical direction. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? What's the picture there? We have the image of the prodigal who left home in a rather unpleasant manner after saying hurtful things to his father. He took his share of the inheritance early, and then he blew it. When he finally came to realize the folly of his ways, we don't have a picture of him continuing to run away, kind of looking back over his shoulder and saying, Gosh, Dad, I'm sorry for all the trouble I caused you. You know, I'm sorry for the consequences of my actions. That's not the picture we have. The picture we have is he turned around and he went home to the father, who, of course, greeted him with outstretched arms. That's the definition of repentance, turning around. Turn from your wicked ways. Our second president, John Adams, spoke of our new constitution and how it depended on a people who did not follow wicked ways. He said, Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Turning from wicked ways and defending what is right may not be easy. In fact, it may involve a fight. As our founders debated the wording of the Declaration of Independence, Patrick Henry gave his famous give me liberty or give me death speech, even as a poor history student. I remember that one. But less well-known are other words in that speech. He said, we will be free. We must fight. I repeat, sir, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left to us. And concerning our fight against evil and standing what is, for what is right, for what we believe in, Paul said it this way in his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, But you, Timothy, belong to God, so run from all these evil things and follow what is right and good. Pursue a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for what we believe. Hold tightly to the eternal life that God has given you, which you have confessed so well before many witnesses. We may have to fight for what we believe is right based on biblical standards. Well, if we pray for our nation the way God directed Solomon to pray for Israel, we have that threefold promise given to us in Second Chronicles 7.14. First, God hears from heaven. We don't have to worry about getting his attention when we pray the way he wants us to pray. He's there 24-7. Psalm 121.4 says, Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleeps. You're not going to catch him catnapping. He hears us when we call to him. 1 John 5.14 affirms that, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. 
Secondly, he will forgive our sins. As used in the Bible, the word forgive means to go, to put aside, to send away. The psalmist used very strong language to describe the depth of God's forgiveness. He has removed our sins far from us as the east is from the west. And then there's the national blessing. He will heal our land. During the reign of King Ahab and Queen Jehoshaphat, or excuse me, Queen, not Jehoshaphat, Queen Jezebel, in the Old Testament, idolatry was rampant, and God sent a drought and famine on the land. Only in response to Elijah's prayers did the rain come and the land heal. Only in response to the turning from the wicked ways of idolatry did the land heal and relationships get restored. Let me take just a minute and talk about what I think the intent of the founders was as they crafted these documents that have guided us for centuries now. Let me use a personal example. It was back about 1983. I was working for the U.S. Forest Service, and I had the opportunity to attend a lecture uh, given by Dr. Caldwell from the University of Indiana School of Environmental Law. Dr. Caldwell came at our request to speak to us. Uh, he was one of the authors of the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969. The Forest Service was charged with implementing that law on land management activities on the National Forest, and we wanted to hear from him some of the legislative history behind it and how it was being implemented. Well, Dr. Caldwell was somewhat critical of us, but not for the reasons that we expected. He said the intent of the act was to deal with major land-disturbing projects that affected the national interest of the United States, things that could have a significant impact on resources, impacts that cause irreparable damage and irretrievable loss of resources. He said they were thinking of things like uh, nuclear power plants, major reservoirs, interstate highways. According to him, it was never the intent to follow the rigorous NEPA procedures on things we were using it for, like little 10-acre timber sales and low-standard roads into recreation areas. He said we'd exceeded the intent of the law and we were reading things into it that weren't there. I suspect the founders might have the same response to how we've interpreted the intent of some of their legislation. Thomas Jefferson, for example, coined the phrase separation of church and state when he wrote of the First Amendment to our Constitution. But did you know that Thomas Jefferson served as superintendent of public schools in the District of Columbia? And he was the author of a requirement that, quote, the Bible be taught in all grades and all classrooms in Washington schools. So what was the real intent of the First Amendment and Jefferson's writings? A historian wrote that the First Amendment guarantees freedom of religion in two clauses. The Establishment Clause, which prohibits the government from establishing an official church. And the Free Exercise Clause that allows people to worship 
as they please. He said, notice that the phrase separation of church and state does not appear in the First Amendment, nor is it found anywhere else in the Constitution. That phrase was actually coined later by Jefferson, and in 1802, when he was president, he wrote the opinion that the First Amendment's Freedom of Religion Clause was designed to build a wall of separation between church and state. Jefferson and the others apparently did not intend the Constitution to forbid the name of God or the Bible from education. They were rightfully concerned about freedom from a state-run church for the government told you how to worship. In view of things happening today, the quote I think that blows me away the most is the one from James Madison, made in 1785. Listen to this. We have staked the whole future of American civilization, not upon the powers of government, far from it, We have staked the future of all our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government, upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. Wow, did he really say that? Check it out. On this Fourth of July... May we as a nation remember our Christian heritage and purpose to protect it. You know, if your children are not hearing these things in history and school anymore, it's up to you to teach them. May we remember that in the sense we are chosen people, we're Christians. May we humble ourselves before God, confessing our sin, and pray for our nation and its leaders. May we continually seek God's face. And not just pray and seek, but take action. Turn from our wicked ways that do not please God. And may we remind ourselves that God hears and promises to restore. We who are called by his name can claim his promises. And as we close today, my first concern is that Maybe not all here are called by his name. Not all have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. They cannot take the name Christian. Well, on the next step card is a place for you to ask for prayer about that or to indicate a desire to talk to someone about becoming a Christian, to take that name. Maybe you who are Christians are feeling convicted about maybe forgetting our Christian heritage. Maybe, not, maybe we're not doing all we can to pass it on to the next generations. Maybe you'd like prayer about that. And I hope all of you will commit to memorizing Second Chronicles 7.14. Let's pray.